Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 10, Halloween. Malfoy couldn't believe his eyes when he saw that Harry and Ron were still at Hogwarts next day, looking tired but perfectly cheerful. Indeed, by next morning, Harry and Ron thought that meeting the three-headed dog had been an excellent adventure, and they were quite keen to have another one. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our only announcement is that my book came out on Tuesday, and that's it. Everyone should buy it. Praying with Jane Eyre by Vanessa Zoltan. (laughs) That's an amazing announcement. That's the only announcement because nothing could be more important. Also, isn't there a companion podcast? Right. The only announcement is two things combined. It's that my book came out and we're also doing a podcast about Jane Eyre at the same time, which is the third season of Hot and Bothered, and it's called On Air. Wait, do you mean air spelled E-Y-R-E? Sure do. That is a fabulous pun. As a dad, I feel like I have to have my kids listen to this podcast just for the dad joke factor. Well, my amazing co-host, Lauren Sandler, came up with the title, but I'm the one who thought to ask Lauren to co-host with me. So every good idea she has is sort of my idea. Obviously. Everybody should go listen to On Air. It's so good. She's so smart. And Jane Eyre is so good. And so the podcast is really good. Everyone should go listen. So Vanessa, you're telling a story this week about protection. I am. So I am settling some scores today because I'm telling a story about a professor who I hated. Wait, was it me? It wasn't me. Was that okay? Are you seriously settling scores? Oh, no. <laughs> I knew it would come to this. His name was Atme Otspe. 
know. I'm not going to share his name, but I did this program at the University of Pennsylvania. It was a nonprofit management degree. And there was like this thing that everyone talked about being this life-changing experience. And it was a class called the Power Lab. And Power Lab, as far as I remember, was like an opportunity for a professor to have a power trip, like messing with students' heads in order to teach us about the power dynamics and leadership. Like essentially like built us up against each other. And I also like don't understand arbitrary rules like that. Like now you hate the other team. And I'm like, but why? Give me a motivation. I'm like not good at things like this. And so anyway, my team was supposed to gang up on this other team at some point. And this woman, we'll we'll call her Cameron, was at the center of being beat up on. And I said, okay, I think we should stop. This is bad. I do not enjoy this. And then at the end of the group, the professor said to me, Vanessa, can you please tell me why you felt the need to protect Cameron? And I was like, sure, she was being bullied. And he was like, do you not think that Cameron is capable of standing up for herself? Do you not think that Cameron is strong? Do you think that you are stronger and better than Cameron? And I was like, none of those things, sir. I just think that sometimes it helps to have someone stand up for you. And so that moment has really stuck with me because the question was, was I actually diminishing this woman by attempting to protect her, which is what the professor wanted me to believe? Or did I like make her feel like she had someone at her back and I didn't interview her, so I don't know. But that to me is the essential question of protection is when is it effective and when are you actually demeaning the other person? It reminds me of what we talked about last week with Harry standing up for Neville. Neville needed it, but also maybe Neville felt small because of it. And he may have both liked it and not liked it. And I actually want to think about this with respect to Hermione in this chapter on Halloween. I have some concerns about the gendered representations of the saving moment in the bathroom as Rowling portrays it here. So I'm wondering about this idea of protection. Who needs protecting and and why Rowling wrote the scene the way she did. But I mean, with respect to your story, it seems to me like the easiest solution, like the one that the professor probably should have modeled would not be to ask you the question, would be to ask Cameron the question. Like, Cameron, right. did you feel like you needed, were you grateful to be protected? How do you feel about Vanessa? Right. That's like the most empowering thing that he could do in his power class would be to actually ask the person rather than to either make her feel small or you feel small. Because asking you the question, however Cameron felt about it, suddenly makes her feel small. He was horrible. Stupid at my aughts pay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Matt, it's time for the 30 second recap. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry and Ron are uh, having breakfast, and uh, they get a package delivered, and holy cow, it's a parcel that they can't open, which is obviously a broom, and it's a broom, and it's the Nimbus 2000, and it's so exciting, and they run into Malfoy, and Malfoy's like, Mr. Uh, Professor Flitwick, uh, Harry has a broom, and Harry's like, uh, and Flitwick's like, no, isn't that great? And then they go to Flitwick's class, and no, and then he learns Quidditch with Olive Wood, and then he goes to Flitwick's class, and they levitate, and then they meet a troll, because Hermione got insulted, and, and they defeat the troll, and this is already 30 I can say it really badly that time. No, you got most of the high points. I missed like the whole encounter of the troll. I almost missed the uh, the insult against Hermione. This is I spent too much time with Flitwick. This is Flitwick's big moment. I feel like 
Flitwick is grateful. He felt seen. He felt protected. Okay. So you're doing, you're, you're counting down. Okay. Please, team, team member, teammate, please cover what I missed. Yeah. Okay. I'll do my best. No promises. Three, two, one, go. So Ron and Hermione are paired in Flitwick's class, and she says it's Wingardium Leviosa. And Ron is like, thank you so much for teaching me. Just kidding. He insults her. And so she goes and she's crying in the bathroom. And then there's Halloween feasts and there's the smell of pumpkin, which is supposed to be amazing, but it doesn't sound that amazing to me. And then um, there's a troll let out and Quirrell faints. And then the boys go down and they lock Hermione in the bathroom with the troll. And then they're like, whoops. And they save her from the troll. And there's like a net for five points. See, I didn't get everything. That was excellent. You covered, like, I skipped the most important part of the chapter, which you described. Because we're a team, and you were like, oh, I missed this part. And so I was like, okay, I got it. That's I know. Thank you. You did all the hard work of covering all the little things. Vanessa, I think there's lots of places to start. I definitely want to talk about what's going on with Hermione and the boys at the end of the chapter. But right at the beginning of this chapter, when Harry and Ron are reflecting upon this monstrous guard dog they've seen, they reflect... You know, what could possibly need such heavy protection? Like, we chose this word protection just because it felt like what was lingering after the last chapter. And lo and behold, in like one of the first lines of this chapter, they're talking about what would need protection here. And what I wonder is, like, do they even know what they mean by protection? Does the thing need to be protected from others? Are others being protected from the thing? (laughs) Or, you know, as we find out later... Is the school being protected by the wrong person getting his hands on the thing, right? And so, like, who you're protecting is is always the question. I feel like that's often true about protection. I think that this is true, like, of me in the Cameron story. Like, I was, quote-unquote, protecting Cameron, but really I was protecting myself. Like, I didn't want to watch it anymore. And so I feel like often protection goes both ways. There are other moments where I feel like, specifically with guard dogs, it's really meant to just protect one way. Fluffy seems to be protecting the stone from being stolen, but also the stone from bringing scary things into the castle right i mean the ultimate object of protection is the wizarding community or the world or the shit right like we're protecting the stone in order to protect others and i i think for your your story about cameron it may have been somewhat self-serving because you didn't want to watch anymore but you also didn't want to be in a class where people maybe including yourself are subject to bullying and so like it it could be self-motivated but even then in an altruistic way right like this classroom should not be a space where this kind of behavior is an object for reflection rather than just what we shouldn't be doing to each other right But the thing that I didn't have in that class, which I think is why the professor didn't like me, is that I didn't have trust or faith in the class. I wasn't like, oh, this process is going to teach me something. And this professor has been teaching this class for 20 years. And like, maybe I actually have something worthwhile to learn if I let the process unfold. And I had none of that. And I think that we see that dynamic of trusting in Percy, right? Like Percy hears that there's a troll and gets the command, prefects take the students out. And Percy's like, you will be safe if you follow me. I will be your protector. And like Percy doesn't have experience fighting trolls, but he believes in Dumbledore and he believes in this system. And so he's like, yes, now if like, and I am this level of 
in the chain of command. And if you follow me, you will be safe. And that just makes me think about like, certainly in order to use certain levers of protection, you have to have faith in it. I mean, I think that's right the way you read Percy. I also think that's what's going on with Neville and Hermione at the beginning of the chapter, right? Because Ron and Harry are wondering what's being protected, but Neville and Hermione are completely disinterested. Yeah. They are not concerned with what's down there because they just trust that this is the way things ought to be. You know, obviously both of them learn to be a little bit less trusting over the course of the series of how well the adults around them are able to protect them. Well, and Hermione learns that lesson so quick and puts it into action so quick, right? Like her trust is broken. She was actually put into a dangerous situation. And so she's like, do you know what? I'm going to start lying. (laughs) Like y'all are not reliable. I'm going to start making different alliances so that I have different levels of protection. Yeah, I think that's right. I I have questions about that lie. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm wondering about is like, Who is she protecting when she lies? I think she's protecting herself from being revealed as a person who might be crying in the bathroom. She's total Gryffindor. She would rather be a courageously, maybe even recklessly courageous person than be a person who could be hurt by classmates' remarks. And what's funny is that Ron and Harry, it seems like they kind of read it as her protecting them, but she's not. Maybe that's my misreading. But if she tells the truth and says, no, I was in here crying and they came to get me, Ron and Harry still look like heroic kids, right? And maybe this is my misreading, but I think in the past when I've read this book and watched the movie or whatever, I have read it as like, oh, look, Hermione is helping Ron and Harry not get in trouble. But actually, she's helping herself not be read as the kind of person that she worries she might be read as. No, I think that's right. This lie does nothing to serve the boys. In fact, I think that the other way around, they would sound even cooler if she was like, well, they knew that I was in here crying. I think that it works twofold. Like one, it's an initiation thing of like, look, I'm willing to lie to authority with the boys. And, you know, the boys aren't going to be punished in either case. So it proves to them that she's not who they thought they were. But the other thing is this Gryffindor question that you brought up. It's preferring to seem brave and reckless rather than vulnerable. And I just wonder, this is like where my questioning about the houses comes in. I'm wondering if she would tell a different lie if she'd been sorted into Ravenclaw. I feel like we try to live up to the things that we get labeled as. And Hermione has been labeled as a Gryffindor. And so she would now rather look like she belongs in Gryffindor. I don't know if it was her instinct, but she is like, oh, no, I'm supposed to be in Gryffindor. And, you know, we're supposed to be brave. And she's performing this thing that she's told she's supposed to be. And Snape is such an unkind teacher and personality that she doesn't want to be vulnerable before him. So I think you can see why she would make this choice in front of these teachers. Can we talk about what I read as sort of troubling gender tropes of this scene? Yes, please. Because, you know, the chapter ends with our narrator saying, you know, there are certain things that just make you become friends after a thing happens. And knocking out a troll is one of the things that makes you friends, right? And if that's the case, why couldn't Ron and Harry be at risk and Hermione help them? I mean, she's the writer. She gets to choose the situation. The fact that Hermione, who is the most skilled at these spells, who is the one being taunted by the boys for being the best at these skills, ends up in the bathroom in a corner crying and petrified. And the boys who were taught their skills by Hermione are the ones that save her. You know, narratively, as a writer, where you want to end up is they are friends because they together work to defeat a troll. The more interesting situation is somehow get Ron and Harry trapped in the bathroom and Hermione come in and save them after they insulted her and because she has all the skills. And then 
and then she's not the damsel in distress who's rescued by the by the heroes the male heroes yeah i i will say that it's like a little more complicated than a typical damsel in distress i'm completely compelled by what you're saying but it is like her spell that gets her out of the situation it is the fact that she is a quote-unquote know-it-all which really just means skilled witch who is willing to teach her peer right that gets her out of the situation and the boys are the one who got her into this dangerous situation twice. They are the one that like sent her to the bathroom crying. And then they're the ones who locked her in with a troll. That's right. And I, I think that those are negative stereotypes about young boys, right? That they're like doofuses who are like, oh, I don't know. I heard a girl and then I locked her in the bathroom with a troll. So I agree with you that like inverting this dynamic more would be a much more interesting way to do it. But she's not like a damsel in distress who was kidnapped from her bed in the middle of the night and like drawn by her hair, right? Like she saves herself to a large extent. That's absolutely true. But in some ways that makes this even more realistic because like the agency of the female character here is obscured. Like she is the one that knows the spell she's the one that teaches ron to do the spell half competently actually so it is her knowledge and actually her teaching which gives them the tools that they eventually use to save her but then she gets docked five points and each of them gets five points they get the credit for it and she gets none of the credit right i think you're right it's not a simple damsel in distress story but in some ways by giving her a little bit of agency but not all of it it resembles the way gender dynamics actually often really work in the world where women do a ton of the work that men take credit for and part of the magic of these books is supposed to be something subversive, right? Where like Neville, the kid who's like weak and beat up at the beginning, ends up being the victor at the end of this book, right? It's him who gets the final points that allows him to win. And so it's certainly frustrating that Hermione, the like main girl, does not get the same credit. And that's also true in the last chapter, right? Like Parvati is the first one to actually be brave and Harry gets the credit. And I'm not sure that he would have stood up to Malfoy if Parvati hadn't set that tone first. Since these books are fantasy and magical, you wish that they would take more advantage of that and be subversive and magical in these like gender dynamic ways also, instead of being like, no, no, this is the place where we're going to be really realistic and committed to the truth of gender dynamics. Again, like the question of protection and how realistic are we supposed to be, like for me, extends to the, all the stuff about Quidditch. When Oliver's explaining the rules of Quidditch, and, you know, Harry asks, has anybody ever died? And like, you know, it's not just an, oh, absolutely not. Right. Again, like this thing that's come up in our conversations a little bit is like, how is risk assessed at a place where cures can be magical or where someone can be rescued from falling from great heights by a spell? And so one of the things I want to ask about or talk to you about is just about Quidditch. Like, how do we feel about Quidditch? What's going on with Quidditch? How dangerous is it? How dangerous should we allow it to be? I mean, I feel like any sport that has a position that is just about protecting the physical safety of one of the people on the team is a sport that I don't like. Fred and George are the beaters and they are like their sole goal is to protect the other players. And like, do you know who doesn't need protection? Someone playing baseball because like so little risk. Like you might like tear a hamstring, but you're almost definitely not going to get a concussion. Like protection is built into the game, but protection also only has to be built into the game because it's so dangerous. I hate dangerous sports, especially with children. How do you feel? 
I think what you're pointing to is that with baseball, it's not it's never the point of the game to actually cause harm to anybody. But what's with Quidditch, the ball is trying to hit you. Right. It's not even another person. It's actually an instrument of the game has you as a target. Like that seems like it's not even like we are competing against each other. And so in the rough and tumble of competition, we might hurt each other. But one of the balls, its job is to knock you off your broom from a great height. Two of the balls. And they want to so much that they are straining against the strap to like get out and start beating you up. Yeah, I don't know what it is about us that likes to watch such high-risk sports. And by us, I mean really, really not me. Or I guess I like it when the threat is hidden. Because, like, I love ballet. I love watching ballet. And, like, as soon as you think about ballet, it is, like, almost as dangerous as football. There's less of a risk of physical head injury, but psychological injury and all sorts of physical injury. I just enjoy the sports more when the risk isn't overt. That maybe isn't better. At least these sports are more honest and you actually have someone there to protect you. I mean, something about the excitement that comes from watching spectacle is that either someone's doing something very difficult and demanding like ballet, which taxes the body and the mind in a way that makes it hard to believe that a human person could do it, or a person is taking risks with their body that we do not imagine that we could take. That's part of the spectacle of events like this. It's just interesting because of the extra magical power that wizards have, they have to raise the stakes. Like they have to get it higher off the ground. We're flying now instead of on the ground. There's there's more dangerous things coming at you. There's more that could go wrong, higher speeds, all this stuff. I mean, I think that all of this speaks to the fact that like we as human beings are really bad at protecting ourselves. I don't know any other term other than like a Freudian death wish. And I like don't necessarily believe in that. But there is something about us that like, wants to live at the edge of protection and not like the idea of an overprotective parent like you wouldn't think that that could exist right (laughs) because you're like no protect your child at all costs but there is actually a point at which if you're overprotective you're not protecting your child and you're actually coddling your child and then they're not going to be safe out into the world and so protection seems to have this eventual diminishing returns where it actually becomes harmful to be trying to protect someone it's just interesting where that line is. Like there is something about the ma- magic of Quidditch that like makes it safer to play. And so they take these higher risks, which then makes it less safe. Like the human capacity to like try to protect and yet resist protection is just like a fascinating dichotomy. Yeah, this is really interesting. I think we've, we've hit on something pretty interesting here because I think I think that's right. And I also think I might have a theory on why that works because – When you first said that we're really bad at protecting ourselves, I think it's because we're good at protecting ourselves from the the risks we know. But the things that we don't understand or know, obviously we don't understand or know. And so we're really bad at protecting ourselves from those risks. So it almost seems like you need a little bit of exposure to the things that can harm you in order to know that they're out there to harm you. That's what coddling is. It's not teaching children enough where the risks are so that they believe the world is less risky than it is. That's the danger of overprotective parenting. It's exposing enough risks so that there's no real danger, but enough knowledge to be wise about where danger is, right? And so maybe the reason we need to draw this line between taking risks and being protected is because to be really well protected you have to kind of personally and experientially understand what the risks are, which means coming up against them and like seeing what the stakes are. And so if you have these extra powers as a wizard, 
you know, if you're able to fly in a broom, you need to start to push the limits of what broom flying is in order to recognize how far from those those limits you're able to go. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that, right, like very large men want to play football because like they walk through the world not being physically scared, whereas I'm a five foot two woman. And so I'm like, I'm all set, scared all the time. Thank you. Short legs, can't run away. You want me in high heels and with a purse. You're literally weighing me down. (laughs) Whereas like if you're a seven foot like broad man, you're like, okay, I got to learn what my limits are. Whereas I was born very clear with what my limits are. (laughs) I've never had the opportunity to forget my physical limit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I know I've talked about this before in the previous iteration of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, but I think that Fred and George's superpower is each other. And like the reason that they're such good beaters is that they like intuitively have one another's backs. So they feel as though they can take greater risks, right? And so one of the great things about protection is that protection begets protectiveness. Like if you feel protected, you're going to take bigger risks to protect others. And I feel like we see that with Fred and George being the beaters of the team. Not just the beaters, but sort of the obviously the most or the least risk averse Weasley. Right. The Weasleys across the board seem like they're fairly courageous, right? In different ways. But they are the ones like taking the other risks, like finding the tunnels and passages out of Hogwarts and doing all that, all the wild stuff that they they like to do. And you're right. It's because they're twins and they have each other. And so there is a, a sense of protection. So given the twins and that the the book seems to be arguing that if you feel deeply protected, you're going to be willing to take greater risks. Do you think that the book is arguing that there's to some extent like no such thing as 
overprotecting one another? Or they just say, is the book saying like community is the greatest protection? I think the book is written from a Gryffindor perspective. (laughs) So I think that the book is wary of risk aversion. I think the book thinks that we need to be more willing to take some risks in general. And I think maybe that's why I like the books. I don't think I'm a Gryffindor, but I also think we need to be taking bigger risks for one another. So Matt, it's our last Havruta for a little while. And my question for you today is what is the point of a rule if it is so easily broken? And so there is a rule that first year shouldn't be allowed brooms. And there isn't even like tryouts for the Gryffindor Quidditch team. I find this very confusing. I feel like, yes, Harry got seen in this way, but then they should have still like had fake tryouts where it was obvious that Harry was going to be the one on the team, but like have some sort of like performance of meritocracy but they bend the rule like instantaneously and McGonagall knows it's silly to bend the rule because everybody is going to be asking for a broom so I'm very confused as to what the point of a rule is when it is so easily broken and the only answer that I can give is that there is an aspirational quality to certain rules of like In a perfect world, first year shouldn't have a broom because they don't understand the limitations of magic yet, and they should be too absorbed in their studies to do Quidditch practice three days a week, right? Like, Harry is so busy doing this, and so we're going to have that be the default rule, and we'll break it if we need to. But I just, I find rules that can be broken without any repercussions to be very strange. I think the adverb carries a lot of weight in your sentence, which is, you know, what's the point of a rule that can be so easily broken? Because the nature of rules, I mean, this is kind of a truism, but the nature of rules is that they're breakable. The exception proves the rule. That's not just like a cliche. It's that if we declare something as a rule, if we decide something is a rule, that's because the opposite of that rule is possible, right? Is, Is something that could exist in the world, right? Like we don't have rules about things which are not possible or desirable or sometimes or whatever, right? It's the ease with which it's broken in this case. And I guess we don't know the ease with which it was broken. Or like the lack of punishment. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know how much of a flying prodigy Harry is. Maybe this rule is never broken, but Harry is such a prodigy that they're like, okay, we obviously this rule doesn't apply to him. You know what I mean? Like how much of an exception is this to the rule? Like, has this never happened before? Is this the first time in the history of the rule that a first year has been granted a broom? Sure, because first years aren't usually really given the opportunity to fly because there aren't open tryouts. Right. And so this I wouldn't say that this is a rule easily broken. I think this is a rule that is very rarely and exceptionally broken. Wouldn't you say that? I don't know. Is that easy? I mean, it's easy for the rule maker to decide when the rule applies and doesn't. I mean, this is I mean, to, to bring in obscure philosophers, the Carl Schmitt, sovereign is the one who makes the exception. Like the definition of the person in charge is the one who decides when rules apply and when they don't. And that's McGonagall. So it's easy for her because McGonagall can just decide that this rule doesn't apply in this case. But every rule has exceptions and this might be a pretty rare exception. I don't know. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So really the thing that frustrates me about this isn't the fact that the rule seems to be easily broken. It's that it seems to be so randomly broken. Like we don't know. Maybe Seamus Finnegan is an equally talented flyer. And like he just never got the chance to like defend Neville in this way and like therefore never tried out for the Quidditch team, right? Like there's something so privileged and lucky about Harry falling into this moment that I just find it, I find it incredibly frustrating. Or I feel like I love that idea that Sovereign is the, what is it? Sovereign is the person? Sovereign is the one who decides the exception. Yeah. Yeah. I just think like maybe once the exception was made, then you have to make the exception for all the first years. I like this just seems to me to be so random. But don't you think don't you think that Harry's skill as a flyer will emerge in Madame Hooch's class? Yeah. So then that's fine. Like give everybody the chance. It's the lack of giving everybody the chance that bothers me. It's equity. It's back to equity, right? Yeah. I mean it's it's about two things to me. My bike was stolen when I lived in Philadelphia and a police officer said to me, oh, stealing bikes is basically legal in Philadelphia because we don't try to like get the bikes back anymore. And like they had just like washed their hands, which is fine of trying to catch people who steal bikes. And it was just like the first time that it occurred to me. I'm like, right. If there isn't any accountability for a rule, the rule essentially stops existing. This is why Carl Schmitt is Carl Schmitt and why he was the ideology behind the Nazis, because the law doesn't exist in itself. It exists in the ruler. Like whatever the ruler says is what the law is. It doesn't matter what's written, which is why it becomes like that sovereign is the one that makes the exception becomes a way to just suspend laws or decide what we want to apply when. Like the way we think about how rules apply he's arguing is just sort of a way for us to kind of make ourselves feel better that there are rules in place, but actually the only real rule is the ruler, right? Which is scary, which is super Voldemort, which is like, which is the wrong ideology. I think that your concern is the right one. Like it's the way that we push back. I mean, because theoretically you can say this thing about sovereigns only makes exception and maybe even like work it out abstractly as yeah, the one who decides when a rule applies actually is the one who carries all the authority. But the reason we put these rules in place is to restrain those impulses, to try to keep us accountable to one another. To we write it down so that we can all see, okay, these are our shared values that we are going to try to hold ourselves to. And so that when the one who does have the power to decide exception makes that exception, at least it's transparent. At least we know why. And we can we can like respond or critique or, or whatever. Right. I feel like any time like this, when a rule just like is disappearing, we need to be asking ourselves bigger questions. And so it's like, okay, bikes are stolen this much. Why? Why are bikes stolen this much? Let's try to address it. Like I had to file, I had to file a police report. I didn't think I was going to get my bike back, but right. Like for insurance reasons, you have to file a police report. And I just like wish it was like, look, bikes are stolen a lot in Philadelphia. So we must have a transportation problem or we must have a poverty problem. And rather than him just like throwing up his hands and being like, we're not going to catch people who steal bikes. And I don't want people who steal bikes to be punished. But like, I guess like the thing that I, w- I want to feel called to in my own life is when I make an exception on a rule, like really use it as a reflection opportunity to like question the rule. Because I think that there should be exceptions to rules, right? I just think every time we make an exception, we have to think about the justice of the rule in general. I mean, you think about sort of like how progressive prosecutors in places like Philadelphia are deciding 
like who to prosecute, who to prosecute most aggressive, most aggressively, right? These are choices that human beings make. But the reason that prosecutors have that agency is because there's a failure in the way that we talk about who was punished and how and how severe punishments are that we depend upon these really powerful district attorneys to be the ones to show mercy or to prosecute or not prosecute because the law themselves are not doing the work that we want laws to do or not creating the kind of society or culture that we hope that they will create, right? And so we depend upon this one figure to actually selectively enforce or or whatever the, the laws that are on the books, which, is, as you say, is a problem with our laws. It shouldn't fall to one person. Right. Thank you, for, Vanessa, for, for your question today, but also for teaching me the reading practice of Havruta, which was new to me when we started this time, and I love it. Isn't it great? It's so great. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com. This week's voicemail is from Carol. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Carol calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. The first thing I want to do is to give a shout out to Matt Potts. I am a pastor of a church here in Nashville, and a few years ago, Matt was a guest on the podcast, and he said something that really struck me, and I ended up quoting him in a sermon just a few weeks later. 
He said that something like when you're reading scripture and you haven't reached the point where you realize God is love, then you need to keep reading. And that was so beautiful. And I shared it with my congregation. And I also told them that they all had to go listen to your podcast. So hopefully you got a few new listeners from Nashville that day. The reason I'm calling today is because I have been thinking a lot about Dumbledore lately. When I read through the seven books with you all in the podcast over the past few years, my eyes were opened a little bit more to Dumbledore and how problematic he is. He keeps secrets. He doesn't turn to the people closest to him for help. He ends up trying to do so much himself, and it ends up uh, being problematic. And yet, at the same time, I have a lot of sympathy for Dumbledore. I think when I first read these books years ago, I thought of him basically as omniscient and that everything he did, he did for a reason. And um, now that I've read through the books more and I've grown up a little bit more myself, I realize how flawed he is and how little he really does know. He's kind of figuring things out as he goes along in these books. It's not even until book six that he realizes Voldemort has created seven horcruxes and he knows the work that's set out for him. He doesn't even have time to explain all of that to Harry. I've thought about him a lot during this past year as we've tried to navigate the COVID pandemic as a congregation. I tried to look to other pastors, but none of us had ever done this before. Uh, We didn't know what we were doing. We're all flying by the seat of our pants. But thankfully, I had lots of smart people in my congregation and beyond who could help guide us to make decisions about mask wearing and social distancing. And I realized I wasn't in it alone. So I feel sorry for Dumbledore that he tried to go it alone so much. And I'm grateful for the people in my life who I can turn to and I can trust to help me along the way. It takes a village. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for this village of the Sacred Text community. And I look forward to the next few years of reading and learning and growing with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carol, for such a kind voice memo and for the shout out. I have to give credit where it's due. That's actually St. Augustine. I stole that line from St. Augustine. But I'm really grateful that it was meaningful to you and hopefully to some folks in your congregation. And also really grateful for your work among the people you serve and that you've worked with them and with colleagues to to help your community through this really difficult year and a half. Yeah, I you know I have to say, Carol, I think that Dumbledore, warts and all, is my favorite character in the Harry Potter books. And it's not because he's perfect, not by any means. Uh, he's deeply, deeply flawed, as, as you know. But I think as much as anyone else, more than anyone else, I think that he also just has this intuition that love is the thing, that love is our best protection and best chance at protection to tie it into this week's theme. And even though he doesn't always know what that means or how to do that well, like any of us, because he has that intuition, maybe that Augustinian intuition in in his actions, that makes him a really sympathetic character to me. And it makes it easy for me to maybe love him despite his flaws. So so thanks for for shouting out Dumbledore, too, and, and offering your version of a blessing for him. Yeah, Carol, I feel like the scariest part of my chaplaincy training was realizing how much of it was made up, that like you really just have to make things up as you go. And so leading a community like that right now must have been an incredible feat of imagination. Um, and I can't imagine how intimidating that must have been. And yeah, I, Matt, I'll just add like to what you said. The other reason I love Dumbledore is because, you know, we've talked about this 
like flaw that I see in myself, which is like when in doubt, try something, right? And Dumbledore is a very when in doubt, try something person. And we see that backfire a lot with Dumbledore. And so I feel like I should learn from him in that way. But I like that he doesn't just stand by and watch the world unfold unjustly. He he always tries. Yeah. And speaking about risks, like I'm just thinking about in the sixth book when he knows he's dying, he doesn't complain about what the world has done to him. He says, I had to try. And this is what trying, this is what happens when you try. And that's okay because the alternative is not trying. Oh, I'm excited to reread Dumbledore with more love for him because I struggled last time because I think to Carol's point, I was like, oh my God, he's not, he's not omniscient and omnipotent. Like what the heck? What a disappointment. And now I'm like, okay, he's just a human being. And I'm like now ready to sort of feel like I had that like fall away from my parents and now from Dumbledore. I can handle it, everyone. Carol, thank you so much for that really beautiful blessing. We're really grateful. Now is the time in the show when we remember all those in our community who have been lost to COVID-19. John Uncles, 69, a father, a husband, and a dad joke genius. Rose Delaney, 94, great-grandma to Danny, Rebecca, and Adriana. Judy Mitchell, 80, a loving mother and grandmother who was outspoken. William Whaley, 90, a veteran father, husband, and grandfather. Oscar Kaneshige, 90, a loving father, uncle, and grandfather. And Mac Walker, 90, German historian who took long walks. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Oliver Wood. I feel like he's such a thoughtful teacher of a complicated sport. He's like very excited. He does a very like clear job. Harry is like repeating everything back to him and Oliver is very patient. He's brought golf balls to practice, which seems like a low risk thing. I think that being a teacher is really hard and can be really frustrating. And Oliver Wood is like 15 or 16 years old. And just, I I think that his love of the sport is what drives him to be a good teacher. But I think that that's true of teachers in general, right? Like the love of your subject is what what drives you. And so I want to bless Oliver Wood for being a great teacher. And I want to bless all the teachers out there who have a love of a subject and are really excited to share it with their students and find passion and patience in that excitement. What about you, Matt? This week, I'd like to bless Percy who is not the most likable fellow, even in this book, before he does the worst things that he will do in this series and betrays his family. He's already just kind of self-important and irritating and obnoxious. But, you know, like in that moment when there's actual danger, he is calm and he's steady and he he gives confidence to the first years that they can trust him. And yeah, I think that he does a good job in that moment. And I feel like, you know, whatever mistakes he's going to make, like, in those moments of crisis, you need someone who's calm and steady and gives confidence to those around him. And so he he was a good prefect in this moment. So blessings to Percy. I agree. He really shines here. So next week, Vanessa, we are going to be reading chapter 11, Quidditch. What should our theme be? So Matt, I'm interested, like based on your blessing with Percy and 
our conversation with Hermione, I'm interested in this idea of likability, like in terms of power, as we were talking about rules. And so I'm interested, Hermione is about to become likable. Percy's about to become more unlikable. So I'm curious to talk about that. Yeah. Who, who decides what counts as likable? Like, this is a really interesting and rich theme. I like it. Let's do it. Great. And I can't wait for you to tell a story about a time that you were likable. <laughs> if I can think of one, we'll see if I can think of one. Oh, I never thought of this. But if if we take turns choosing, like you're choosing the theme for the other person's story. That's true. Oh, That's... next week's theme is cake. It's <laughs> <laughs> all I ever want to talk about. <laughs> That's right. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Please join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You can leave a review for us on iTunes, and please send us a voicemail with a blessing. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited by Juliana Bradley. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nicole. And we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Carol for the voicemail this week, Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thank you, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Harry Potter book. Wow. That is a very specific kind of job where I have multiple Harry Potter books open.